we'll start as always by taking a quick look through the Sunday papers and starting now with the Sunday Independent the front page resign or be removed Falch ahead was told and this is a story about Michael Cawley which is covered across the papers today the Falch Ireland chairman who resigned after being told by the government of Hugh O'Connell and Paul Sheridan report that his position was untenable a mid-morning call yesterday from the Minister Catherine Martin this is of course after uh, he was uh, found to have been holidaying in Italy obviously I was going to say contrary to the government health advice but the advice has been so all over the place it's on Schrodinger's green list of countries you can and can't travel to um, but he has fallen on his sword the, the Sindo reporting mixed views among ministers one Fianna Fáil cabinet minister saying it wasn't a red card offence one Fine Gael cabinet minister saying it was an extraordinary uh, lapse of judgement so that speaks to the, the wider tension and confusion over the issue also a uh, on the front page of the Sindo Jodie Corcoran has the story this is a, a survey by the Sunday Independent there's almost two thirds of people People believe that the pandemic unemployment payment should be stopped for those who are taking uh, foreign holidays against official advice. The government obviously rode back on this, um, initially having decided to suspend it if you went abroad. Now it's emerged that 40% strongly agree and 23% somewhat agree that that would have been the right decision, their their initial move. Um, another interesting one on the front page of the Sindof Mellon coin this morning, officials monitor arts criticism. And this is officials from the Department of Justice who were keeping an eye on social media for anyone who was criticising direct provision over the last few months including famous faces and journalists the likes of Marion Keyes, Christy Moore Hosier and Roger Gorman, who now of course is the Minister with responsibility for direct provision and for uh, scrapping it or reforming it were all uh, monitored for some of their statements um, and that was compiled in a daily report to the department. It would seem that maybe instead of monitoring what people are saying about it they could actually be doing something about the conditions because that's where a lot of the outbreaks have been in terms of Covid as well. Also on the front page of the Sindo, Maeve Sheehan reports Gardaí target a further 10 suspects in the murder cases of Detective Garda Adrian Donoghue. The continuing investigation there uh, will now focus on up to 10 people, including mothers, fathers and siblings who are suspected of shielding the cross-border criminals suspected of involvement. That is uh, the Sindo and plenty more inside in relation to COVID that we will be getting on to later on with our newspaper panel. Moving now to the Sunday Times, and this is politically, I think, the story of the papers today. Taoiseach was wrong over Cowan sacking. Jim O'Callaghan speaks out against leader Micheál Martin. There was obviously tensions there when Jim O'Callaghan wasn't appointed a senior minister. It was offered a junior ministry which he turned down. And he's done an interview with Justine McCarthy in the Sunday Times today in which he has uh, basically defended Barry Cowan, said it was a difficult decision for Micheál Martin but that he should have given him more time. That Barry Cowan was right to not want to give out his uh, confidential document in relation to the, the Garda drink driving offence. And uh, basically the rest of this interview I think is lining up Jim O'Callaghan's play on the leadership at some point in the next two years when, when Micheál Martin rotates out of the position as Taoiseach he's said he doesn't want to create a conflict and that there's no vacancy at the moment but seems to be very much teeing up uh, the idea that he will be there to happily step in whenever one does arise should he be involved in forcing that or not. Biggest Covid spike since May the Sunday Times front page also says this is the 200 new cases that were identified yesterday and uh, no new deaths acting Chief Medical Officer Ronan Glynn saying the figures are deeply concerning and that's covered across the papers in all the various forms that it is now taking because of course the tendrils of COVID are into every aspect of society not just the uh, number of cases the story from during the week the one I think my favourite story from during the week because it ended in a happy ending was the two cousins who were thankfully found safe off the coast of Galway and that makes the front page of the Sunday Times again with Lorna Siggins reporting that pop songs kept the cousins afloat singing Taylor Swift songs helped the two of them to make it through last Wednesday night at sea on their paddle boards the eldest 
interest of the girl revealed yesterday, but also further down in that story and maybe more significantly for the various at-sea searches and search and rescue operations that we see. Dave Courtney, a former Irish Coast Guard search and rescue pilot, is quoted as saying he's uh, very concerned about the actual operation itself, given that it seems that the fishermen who found um, the the two relatives were actually just following their own prediction of the tides and a bit of a back of the envelope work they'd done themselves and yet all the equipment and all of the different technology that was used in the search and rescue operation uh, couldn't find them in that time. There is a response in the Coast Guard, I think, saying that they would have uh, been on that track or they were closing in on that location anyway. But it is one to to consider perhaps a bit of old ingenuity and getting the better of technology in this kind of a situation. Moving then to the front page of... The business post, and again, it is uh, coronavirus central, really. Moderate surge in virus cases could overwhelm the health service, is the front page story from Rachel Lavin and Peter O'Dwyer. And this is a warning ahead of the the autumn, the second surge, whatever it's going to be and whatever it's going to look like, that even a moderate surge in COVID-19 cases over the coming months uh, could overwhelm the system, according to Dr. Pader Gilligan, an emergency medical consultant and former IMO president. And, And he's basically pointing out all the different Uh, surges, all the different pinch points that had been highlighted earlier on in the year and could well um, uh, cause problems in in the months to come. The Fault Ireland review also makes the the front page Fault Ireland story rather of uh, Michael Cawley makes the front page of the Business Post. Government's been urged to carry out a total review of Fault Ireland to reassure tourism businesses that the state agency is in fact fit for purpose after Michael Cawley resigned uh, yesterday. So that's a flavour of uh, your your front pages uh, and quite a lot in there in relation to COVID and other stories that we are going to get into now uh, with my newspaper panel. Delighted to be joined by Mick Clifford, author and special columnist with the Irish Examiner, and by Dr. Lona Duffy, a GP in Monaghan and medical director for the North East Doctor on Call Service. You're both very welcome this morning. Thank so. you. Um, Mick, we might start with the Fault Ireland story. Uh, myself and, and uh, Gavin McLaughlin earlier on the show are differing opinions about whether he had to go. I, I think he did, given the message. What, what's your own thoughts? I think he did. I, I think, unfortunately, from his point of view, uh, to be fair, I mean, it should be pointed out he was somebody, I think, who was probably a very efficient chairman of board Falsha, his previous experience with Ryanair. He was not doing it for the money, quite obviously. I'd say he's a man of considerable means after his time with Ryanair and he, for the prestige, perhaps. And therefore, you know, on, on that level, he was doing a service to the state and fair play to him. But I tell you, Sean, I never cease to be amazed at people in high positions who do the things like that, you know, that many of us would consider foolish, that no consideration appears to go into either in the first instance. Did he believe that what he was doing was compatible with his position? I find that difficult to believe. If he thought perhaps it wasn't and that he might do it and hopefully it would never come out, somebody who's been around as long as him, again, I find that so difficult to believe. But... It happens, it happens time and time again. I never cease to be amazed about it in politics in particular, this is outside politics. Having said all of that, Catherine Martin, it would appear, acted very decisively according to the Sunday Independent. I think it's the only paper that suggests this directly. She basically contacted him and said, you'll have to resign or be sacked. So I think, to be fair, there was no option but for him to go under the circumstances. Remember, you're talking about a scenario where many people, uh, particularly at the lower socioeconomic levels of society, would have put in money aside to go on the holiday to Spain, the holiday wherever, done this before the pandemic started. They're having to give up at considerable cost to themselves 
you can't have a scenario where somebody decides that it's it's okay to go off to uh, Italy when you're in Mr. Colley's position. Mm. I think it goes back to the speak to the confused nature. I think of the government messaging on this as well. It's been kind there's of, an element to that there, but I don't think he can get a pass on that. To be honest yeah. with you, as if he was a TD, if he was somebody like that, perhaps you could. But chairman of board file, the, the the organisation that's spending a fortune, telling us every day to to staycation to use that phrase. I, I I don't think you can give him a pass on that. Yeah, that story all across the front pages of the, the broadsheets today. Um, Dr. Lona Duffy, look, there's a huge amount of coverage of COVID today. The 200 cases yesterday. Are you particularly worried about that? Or is there, I'm wondering, is there some Saturday surge we're seeing because it was 174 last Saturday, to, uh, 200 yesterday. Uh, what does that, or what does it tell us, do you think? Well, I, I think it's telling us that this was... The- to be predicted and even last week when we saw the surge we were told that there would be another surge Ronan Glynn had said that that we would see higher numbers in the in the following week and um, what's probably of concern is that while we're seeing the cluster figures which at least can be contained and managed we're also seeing a lot of sporadic cases and in the community and in homes and in, in people's homes and I suppose for me as a GP my last um, task on Friday evening was to deal with the patient um, who again had no links to businesses had no links to meat factories hadn't been travelling abroad and it was tested positive and has been symptomatic for well over a week. So not only the patient, but their family and anyone else they've been in touch with may well have been, um, you know, infected now with the virus. And I think Mm. this is the concern. We are seeing sporadic outbreaks, which means it is in the community and it's going to spread in our communities. Mm. Is there more that we could be doing to, to limit that? I mean, is this something we just have to accept is going to be a factor of life until there's a vaccine? Well, I think we've still got to get the message out there that if you have any symptoms, you contact your GP immediately by phone. So I think lots of people, and this is being repeated all of the time in the news and the media, in the, the NEFET kind of updates when they're saying that they are aware that people who are testing positive may have had symptoms for up to five days before they actually get tested. And that's not because it's taking five days for them to get that test once they're referred. It's that many people are saying, well, sure, I always get a head cold at this time of the year. Um, it's only a bit of a sore throat. I don't feel that bad. I don't have a really high temperature and they're delaying contacting their GP, delaying getting tested. And most importantly, they're not isolating at home. And and I think, you know, Mike Ryan in the World Health Organization has talked repeatedly about the fact that we need to keep the pressure on uh, to keep the spread down and to stop us another surge happening. And we're seeing that we are seeing this rise in cases and it is of concern, especially when we're hoping to keep our R rate down, our replication rate. It had been 1.8 this time last week. I think on Thursday or Friday it was down to 1.6. But that means for every person that we test positive, we know that they've infected at least 1.5 people. And, and again, we know there are many people out there who haven't been tested and are positive and those as well with the false negatives who are positive but symptomatically we know they have it. Is that going to become more of a problem now as we head into the winter when like I'm not 100% sure I could tell the difference if I had a cold or if I had the flu Mm. or if I had the coronavirus and you might naturally think oh I'll wait a couple of days instead of bothering the health service and putting that extra pressure on but should the advice be that if you think you have anything or any inkling of it you just need to go and get tested Yep There's no way to tell what virus is what virus unless we test you so we can't tell you you don't have COVID until we've done a test on you and I think that's the big thing some people get really mild symptoms I mean I, I, I had it I had reasonably severe symptoms but other members of my family who had it had really mild symptoms and if it wasn't for me they probably wouldn't have been tested so I think that 
that's the message. If you have a cough, if of any sort, a new cough, if you have a bit of a sore throat, if you're feeling generally unwell, aches and pains, you've got to contact your doctor and not just presume that it's, it's a simple virus. This is the virus and we've got to outrule it. So until we keep getting that message, until we continue to make it easy for people to be tested, I think that's another thing. I know for us in Monaghan, I mean, the testing centre nearest us has been reduced in its capacity. So people are having to travel further. They're having to travel beyond Cavan to get tested. So again, it's another barrier to them being tested. Uh, and looking at, you know, looking at stuff online, there are different models happening maybe in other countries where, you know, we're doing more random testing of people. That's what we're talking about doing here now within the meat factories that we'll have weekly testing. In Germany, I just talked to a friend this morning and um, she's a teacher and has gone back to school and they're offering voluntary testing in schools and in preschools every fortnight to all staff and all students. So these are the things I think we have to look at. We have to test, test, test. Coming into the winter, you're right, I as a GP, I mean, to be honest, we're in panic mode. Um, normally, this would be our quiet time. And I think Pather Gilligan alludes to that in, his, um, in, in one of the pieces that's in the Sunday Business Post that this should be the quiet time. This is normally when everybody's on holidays. There are less viruses. The schools haven't gone back yet. But we're at our busiest ever. Mm-hmm. And once we start seeing other viruses starting to increase when the schools and the kids are mingling, once we start seeing flu arrive, we're really going to be snookered both in general practice and in the hospital setting. Mm, and there is a huge question of that. You, you did talk about the testing in Mayo Sheen actually has a very good piece in the in the Sunday Independent today saying that the government strategy needs to be under more, more scrutiny and needs to be looked at. Uh, we were talking with Mick just about the Michael Cawley story, but I did see you tweeting during the week um, in relation to what GPs might be expected to do for some people who are, who are coming back in relation to sick pay. Uh, could you just cover what that is or, or like what you are expected to do? Did okay. you get any more info on that? So uh, and there's a, a document on government.ie that's offering advice to people and offering advice I suppose to us as well that if somebody comes back from a country and they have to isolate that they're to contact their GP and to be given two weeks sick leave so they're put on the COVID sick leave. I suppose I as a doctor have a real issue with this. They're not sick. Now I do recognise that there is an issue. Why should they be able to go away and come back, especially if it's non-essential? Obviously, we're not talking about essential travel where we're deliberately bringing people in because they're key workers or there's some medical need or whatever. But people who are choosing to go to the States, people who are choosing to go to the UK, any of the red countries, if they're choosing to go there, they're now coming back and they have to go into isolation. That's it. Should they be paid or shouldn't they be paid? In my own view, it's not sick leave. So, I as a GP shouldn't be having to take their call and then put in for their sick leave. I think there are different models. Perhaps that this is where we should be forcing a quarantining of them coming back into countries as is happening in other countries like New Zealand um, or perhaps that they can just go online and apply for the kind of unemployment COVID payment that was available. But it seems unfair and it seems unfair that you can choose to go away and come back and then, you know, have a paid staycation for two weeks. But we do have to keep these people at home. And if we don't pay them, they're going to go back into work and they're perhaps going to say they weren't away and hide that fact. So public health need is that we need them isolating. But how do we do that and how do we pay them for it? Mm. Mick, what do you make of this one? Because there, there was one of the big flip flops of the government where mm. they initially said you're not getting a COVID payment for, for two weeks if you go on your holidays. They changed that decision. It's now in the front page of the Sunday Independent where the, they may have misread the public mood on that despite the backlash. What's your own thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I, I had a problem when this came, first of all, Sean, from the point of view of it seems to be very unequal treatment. If you're on the COVID payment and you were stopped for the two weeks when you came back, right, that's a penalty you have to pay, etc. But then what about everybody else? People who are still working, people who are in the public service, people who are still working in the private sector. As long as I'm saying, like, I mean, that idea that you can just put in for two weeks sick pay 
and uh, continue on in that regard. I think that is there's definitely an issue mm. around that. Similarly, if you're going to stop the COVID payment, well, what about other social welfare payments, for example, like child benefit and uh, all of these issues, you know? So, I mean, there has to be equal treatment one way or the other, I think. And it's definitely an issue. The, the, the initial response to the government, there was, you know, Again, like a lot of things in politics, something can be blown up completely and suddenly there's a, a, a knee-jerk reaction. But it, to me, it's very much a question of uh, equality of treatment. If you're going to stop the COVID payment, then why should others merely be able to call in sick and get paid for those two weeks mm. that they're self-isolating? Just in the broader thing, I'm back from holidays and all that, and in terms of the community and the reactions in the community, I think there's no doubt that guards are dropping in the general community. And I think that is something that we really need to be worried about. But where I found a bit of a distinction was among those people who are dealing with the public on a constant basis, for example, in shops, in areas like that, they're still they're still very much aware of the danger that is there, in my opinion, from what I could observe. Yet those of us in the general population who are not on the front line effectively, I really feel that guards are dropping and that that's what could definitely become a, a, a bit of a problem going into the autumn in particular in terms of the community and, and the knock-on effect that's going to have. Mm. It is an interesting one and some of the more detail of that, that Sunday Independent Survey where um, in regards to the changing attitudes that you've mentioned, some people saying that um, in regards to social distancing, 7 in 10 claim to get angry when they see people failing to practice good etiquette and there is increasing numbers that are now uh, getting annoyed or say they would approach someone if they weren't wearing a mask in public. Interestingly as well, there's a good graph on page 12 of the Sunday Independent of the changing attitude towards the government's response and how it is uh, starting to shift people less approved of, of the response as this has gone on and I suppose as the intricacies have, have uh, gotten more into detail look there's a lot of COVID stuff here Mick across the papers anything particular that stands out because we could read through all of it well I suppose the schools is the thing yeah. is, is definitely a big thing and the challenges that are going to be there are absolutely enormous but one thing that jumps out at me about it is again that community is the key if the virus gets into schools it's going to originate in the community and I think that is most definitely uh, the big issue that we're facing into now at the moment but it's, it's going to be there's there's some great coverage in it and it's, it's going to be a huge it's going to be a huge challenge everywhere just one stat I saw there that I just thought was interesting Sean in Israel where they had a very good initial mm. uh, res- response into the initial wave of COVID they were, they were at about 20 cases a day once they opened the schools, in one school alone, there was 130 cases. Now, that, you know, it, it makes you very, very wary. And, you know, th- th- there are obvious things about, we can all talk about being responsible, but kids are kids. Mm. And, and, and getting that across is going to be very difficult. But there are huge challenges there. And in another way, we've seen, to a large extent, the way the health service at every sector has stepped up to the plate, so to speak, in regard to this. Now comes the time for those in education, including the department, which hasn't covered itself in glory, I'd suggest, and teachers and everybody, it's going to be very difficult for them and, and a huge effort's going to be required. Mm. Um, Lona, I'm struck reading, particularly Tomás Ryan's piece in the Business Post today, mm. how little we actually know about the spread among children and what impact that might have. Is Does that concern you as a GP? 
It does, because again, I suppose most of the data that's been gathered internationally has been based on those who are hospitalised and, and those maybe who were tested. And again, for so long, especially here in Ireland, we've only tested those who are symptomatic. So I think what we're seeing in other countries is they're now, you know, doing kind of general screening programmes, not only of just t- the test to see if you actively have it, but looking also at antibodies. And again, that's one of the studies that Thomas Ryan kind of alludes to, a study in Korea looking at 600 index cases and and analysis of that and looking at who's more likely likely to infect. So in his, he's saying that they're reporting that those between 10 and 9 years old are more likely to infect and those in their household context, so those they're living with, as opposed to those who are adults who are positive. So again, you know, is this because they shed more virus? We don't we don't really know. I think, does it change anything about what we're doing? Probably not. Look, we, we realise that we have to open up. We, we just, it has to be in a step-by-step approach, but we have to be ready for another surge when the schools open up. And and again, there was an article, another article that talked about there being no increase in, in numbers or no transmission from students to teachers. But again, this friend in Germany was saying, absolutely, there was. They opened their schools before the summer holidays and there was some schools had to close. So we've got to be ready that we need to be able to act. And if we feel there is an outbreak, that we contain that. And I suppose I think it's very difficult for the schools. There's general advice being offered to them. And I have children of school going age and we're seeing the advice now coming in. But in the papers, we're seeing, you know, varying advice in varying schools, changing uniforms every day, bringing in four masks a day, things like that, that really, you know, there's no evidence to support. So I think what we've seen in all of this is it's a bit like wearing masks going into shops and on buses. When we're told we must do it, when we're given strict guidance, we tend to adhere to it. And I think that's good. Like today I came in on the bus and it was fantastic. Everybody had a mask on. Locally in Monaghan, everybody has a mask on going to shops because they have to. But prior to this, you were being told you should. It's probably best that you do. And nobody did. So again, with the schools, I think the schools need to be given clear guidance on what should and shouldn't happen. And they need to be supported in this. But parents are also going to need support because the temptation is, oh, my kids are a wee bit unwell. Is it? Isn't it? I have to get to work. There's no one to look after them. I mean, these are the things that how are employers going to manage it if employees can't come in because they have to quarantine at home because there may be a positive, you know, until their child is tested, they're meant to remain at home as well. So I think we need clear, clear, and it's got to be crystal clear guidance on this for schools, for parents and also we've just got to be aware that there is going to be a rise in numbers. Mm. Just one, one thing on it, Sean, I mean, and another element to it, and we've seen this in every sector in relation to this virus, it is not, the, sorry, we are not all in this together as such because there is no doubt that in terms of the socioeconomic divides in society, those at the lower ends are hit worse and in relation to the schools that will mean in certain instances that parents are going to require more support than perhaps elsewhere and that is definitely something that has to be looked out for mm. um, as, we, as we're facing mm. into the autumn. Yeah, especially if you're talking about changing uniforms every day it is easier for some, for some or others. Yeah. But again, th- there's no there's no evidence to support that and I think no, Roland Glynn came out and said that but again, that's unfair. It's unfair to have that kind of advice coming out to parents and putting that pressure on them. Even simple things like, you know, it shouldn't be disposable masks. Everybody should be told it's washed masks that every child needs two. You can buy them two for three euro in a lot of the shops in town and that's what you need to do. Wash one each night and have a clean one the next day. Keep the cost down and also be aware of landfill and the disposable masks that will not you know, yeah. break down for us. Fergus Finley was in the seat you were in last week and he said were he a dictator he would make it mandatory for everyone in the health service to get a flu vaccination. The government has been talking about stepping up the flu vaccination particularly for children and for under 12s but do we have the capacity? There's a lot of concern raised about the actual capacity uh, to do it. Is it feasible and how necessary is it given the wave of COVID and flu that we might see concurrently? OK, so I suppose two parts to that. Number one, I'd agree with Fergus. 
that it should be mandatory. Everybody who is interacting with patients from carers to nurses to doctors should have the flu vaccination. Now we know that the Medical Council, the Irish Medical Council have guided GPs and said that you have an ethical obligation to vaccinate yourself, not just to protect yourself, but to protect your patients. But yet we're aware that only one third of healthcare professionals and, and mainly in the hospital setting actually vaccinate themselves and take the flu vaccine every year. And yet these people then are dealing with the sickest people. So I absolutely think it should be part of your contract that you must have the vaccine. You know, there's, there's absolutely no excuse for and it. Why is there such a low take up? Sorry. Um, why is there, you know, people still have this, oh, I don't know, oh, I got the flu after I took it one year. And look, at you can't get the flu after you get the flu vaccine. That's it. And we all should know that. But you know what? It, it's amazing how these kind of unsubstantiated fears are still out there. Mm. And, and it seems unbelievable that they are there amongst healthcare workers. But lots of people are thinking, well, I'm young, I'm healthy. Sure, if I got the flu, it wouldn't be the worst thing and I'm unlikely to get it. I never got it before. But that's the reality is that they're putting themselves, their families and more importantly, they're putting their patients at risk. So then flu vaccination, obviously um, this year, um, Simon Harris, before he left his role as Minister for Health, announced that um, he was going to fund uh, the administration of flu vaccine to all our children. Now, this is being done internationally and our nearest neighbours in the UK and in Northern Ireland have been providing this in the form of a nasal vaccine to all school going children for years, absolute years. And it's something that, you know, I'm delighted to see and, and all GPs are delighted to see coming in because flu actually affects many more of us than COVID really does and actually has a higher rate of admissions to hospital and probably a higher death rate overall. Um, but how this is going to be administered is the question. And we, we've now been told that there are 800,000 children in this, this age group from the two to kind of 18s inclusives. And it seems to have been decided by somebody that general practice is going to be the group who will deliver this. Now, as I said already, this was normally delivered in the schools in the UK by public health colleagues. So we are aware that they're under pressure and it may not be possible for them to go to do that. But I think everybody forgets GPs are on the ground every day dealing with acute medicine. GPs are the only group who did not stop working, could not cancel clinics, could not defer their workload on a 24-7. We've been there working every day with our staff and our practices, doing our out of hours, doing, you know, over overnight, Saturday, Sundays, every day of the year being available. We can't stop doing that. So while hospital clinics during the tough times were able to kind of say, we'll cancel the clinic, you'll get seen again in six months. Public health were able to stop non-essential work and stop doing the baby checks and things. GPs can't do that. And we've never, ever been busier. This is normally our quiet time and we are at the busiest ever. People haven't been able to take holidays. They can't get locums to replace them. And now we're being expected to vaccinate 800,000 children. Now, I'm not saying general practice won't do it and can't do it, but it cannot do it in the normal daytime work. I think there are lots of models. We could open up the test centres and have it done through those. We could look at the COVID hubs that GPs did extra time. We're paid to go in at weekends and do that. We could look for other staff to volunteer to do it. So there are many ways of doing it. But the reality is it will not be possible to vaccinate 800,000 children, especially when we're talking about how we're going to do it. It is a nasal vaccine, so that part's quick. But parents have to be consented. They have to be given information. They have to be advised that their child may be a little unwell, have temperatures over the next few days. And then we're being told they have to wait for 15 minutes after that vaccine. Now, there was some talk they could wait in a car outside the surgery. That might be fine in somewhere like Monaghan if I have a car parked near me. But that's not going to be OK if you're in Dublin and you've bussed to your GP or the car park is, you know, half a mile away. So 
again, it seems to be this ongoing presumption that we'll just bring in this and hand it over to general practice. And, and I suppose for me as a GP, I'm, I'm totally cheesed off. I really, I really am. We, you know, hospital clinics have cancelled, so we're busier dealing with, you know, sorting patients' problems that can be seen. And now this. And yet at the same stage, this is such an important and valid vaccination programme. So again, I, I think GPs are trying to highlight this. They're tweeting about it. They're talking about it. They're saying we're not against it. We will help where possible, but it cannot be landed and foisted on us. A lot of this is covered in the Sunday Business Post today, page 12, Daniel Barron talking about the troops on the ground and their experience and also in the front page story where Peter Dwyer and Rachel Lavin are reporting a moderate surge in the virus cases could overwhelm the health service. Is it as bad as that? Is it one like on the precipice of one more push and it could be a lot worse than the first time? Absolutely. Daniel Barron's piece is very good because it's kind of talking about, um, it's quoting consultants and, you know, saying that pre-COVID we were at in, in our hospitals 95% capacity and that the international standard in, or well, the European standard would be 75% capacity. So things are down at the moment. But if we start seeing rates rise, which we are, we know in general practice, numbers attend, uh, numbers ringing and attending are rising. A&E departments are busier. Our out of hours are way busier. And you know, all we need now is another surge plus flu, plus other viral illnesses as children start to mix. Because we've got to remember, all those children haven't been meeting each other in a school kind of situation for six months. So they've kind of lost some of their natural immunity to other illnesses. Because any of you have children who know that when the kids start school for that first six months, you're tortured. It's diarrhea, it's vomiting, it's coughs, it's cold. So, you know, they build up an immunity and after a while they stop getting them when they meet the virus because they're able to fight it naturally themselves. But after six months, I know we're absolutely going to see a surge and that surge will impact on the hospitals as well. And, you know, that's that's the big fear. Yeah, and it's one of the, the big fears, as you say, around the schools reopening. It is uh, such an uncertain time. And uh, Mick, there's lots to talk about in terms of the meat plants. We're going to come back to that in our final part. But one of the big stories that caught my eye, the, the political journalist in me caught my eye on the front page of the Sunday Times. And this is Justine McCarthy's interview uh, with Jim O'Callaghan, which seems to be his coming out party as, yes, I want to be the next leader of Fianna Fáil, even though I won't openly say I want to be I the next think, leader of Fianna Fáil. I think it's spot on there, Sean. Uh, strange move. I mean, it's it would strike me that Jim O'Callaghan is lining himself up to be a, a, a rallying standard for those within the party who are disaffected. And we know a certain number were disaffected about the whole idea of going into coalition. Um, he has a cut at Michal Martin over the sacking of Barry Cowan, which I think, to be fair to Michal Martin, and it's a very sad time for the Cowans at the moment, just buried mm. their mother there over the weekend. But to be fair to Michal Martin, that issue got to a stage where and Jim O'Callaghan is suggesting that he understands why Barry Cowan didn't want to say any more and this is what precipitated his sacking. However, it got to a stage where the Sunday Times, as it was, had a story which said that Barry Cowan appeared to evade the Garda checkpoint. Now, that's a serious issue. It's, it wasn't quite that as it turned out at mm. all. But I think Martin didn't have a hell of a lot of uh, choice in that regard. But it's interesting he's saying that and he, 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 he's, he doesn't knock on the head this idea that himself and Barry Cowan are going around the constituencies watering the grassroots effectively or back in the Charlie High days on the rubber chicken <laughs> circuit. Uh, and it's interesting he says if I'm called to uh, constituencies I'll go around and Barry will as well. So he seems to be talking for Barry Cowan there. Mm. But it's definitely there elements of that there I, look if you ask me Fianna Fáil's big problem is not who's going to be next leader or whether or not Michal Martin will continue being leader their big problem is staying relevant and uh, whether this is the way to go about it is very interesting of itself and whether or not Jim O'Callaghan highly competent individual uh, a lawyer for, from South Dublin whether he is somebody who can reactivate Fianna Fáil's what you might call original centre-left uh, activism um, questions could be open about that as well I'd suggest
guess. Do yeah, you know? I mean, he says it in this piece is Fianna Fáil is a centre left party. I don't think anyone sees them as a centre left party at the moment. And they used to, it's a strange one where the vast appeal of Fianna Fáil all down through the years was that they appealed to so many people across a broad base. And that seems to be almost what's their undoing now in that you can't quite identify anything they stand for. You can't and the whole political upheaval since the recession you have seen an an opening up of politics in this country along the lines that is in others and very identifiable as the what you might call centre-right or right-wing party is Fine Gael and since the last election very suddenly and as a result of it would seem just a few months uh, in terms of strategy prior to that because they had an awful uh, local election Sinn Féin are to a certain extent capturing all Fianna Fáil clothes as long as coming on themselves and they also appear to have that sort of resourceful approach to politics that Fianna Fáil was known for going back 20, 30 and 40 years. So for Fianna Fáil to stay relevant, I think that's the big issue and that's what an awful lot of them within the party should be concentrating on rather than jockeying for position. But look, it's, it's up to themselves. But isn't there yeah. just a constant undermining here of Michal Martin? Yeah. Like, mm. It's so hard to believe that he's actually going to get his two and a half years in this role. I mean, even the back page, I think it's of the, the, the Sunday Times has a picture of Boris Johnson and him walking along and Boris saying, you know, tell me again why Leo's not here, <laughs> you know, and again even that, you, you watch over the last couple of weeks how, uh, you know, Leo Varadkar has been coming out, making statements making, you know, acting you know, in that Taoiseach slash presidential mm. role as opposed to being the Taunashta uh, with Michal Martin, I mean really even just for me as an ordinary punter looking at the news I seem to be hearing more from Leo than I am from Michal Martin well, and, and I think a certain amount of it comes down to Fianna Fáil need to be in government at the moment to make mm. it relevant Fine Gael, not so much and the Greens well there's so many divisions there you don't know what exactly they do want so therefore that kind of undermining is going to go on and I agree with you um, it'll be some job for them to, to do the course and in fairness it's, it's a challenge for Michal Martin and I think I think he knows that so it'll be interesting to see how he handles it Plenty as we've been talking about in the Sunday papers about Covid as you would expect 200 new cases yesterday the most significant rise but the meat plants as well an issue that hasn't gone away it was obviously before an Oireachtas committee during the week and quite a lot in the papers the Sunday Independence back page Jean Kerrigan is writing meat plants are the real scandal that stinks also in the Sunday Independent Hugh O'Connell on page 2 Minister calls for sick pay at meat plants and this is a call from Pippa Hackett actually something I didn't know that there wasn't sick pay at meat plants until very recently which is obviously a very significant issue it's also in the Business Post uh, Aidan Regan writing on page 9 big food industry profits while we pay the cost of cheap meat and the editorial on page 22 situation unfolding in our meat plants is extremely worrying Mick um, you've been writing about this obviously during the week and the conditions for uh, people who are working in meat plants. Um, what's your take on the coverage today and the issue as a whole? Yeah, I think extensive coverage today and it's fairly, it's it's it's, it's very good, Sean. Um, I mean, you know, you have to look at it this way. The nursing homes, you can claim to some extent, people will dispute it, we're caught a bit unawares. We weren't caught unawares with meat plants. This mm. was flagged in various different places in the doll, outside the doll. It uh, was flagged all over the place and yet it happened. And to me, it's symptomatic of the whole approach to the meat industry from um, the body politic, from the permanent government and all of that. And that is basically hands off, stand back. Michael McNamara referenced it during the week, the chairman of the COVID committee, that it's been given a large degree of latitude over the years. And that, I think, is the reality. I think the conditions in there 
uh, all the evidence, a certain, sorry, a certain amount of evidence suggests there are pretty bad conditions in there. As you say, no sick pay. Uh, to give you the smallest example, one red flag for exploitation, and that is the whole issue of bogus uh, self-employment, you know, which in, in which people aren't directly employed. Now, at that COVID committee, the union reps claimed, one of them said it was about 30% of employees were uh, treated like that. Another said 40. The representative from the meat industry said in RT that evening that it was 2%. Mm. Now, where lies the truth? Look at the inspection regime. Since the outbreak, there's been 39 inspections by the HSA, the Health and Safety Authority. Uh, only nine of those were unannounced. You you continually get the impression that the attitude to the meat factory is stand back, let them at it, um, a huge number, a huge proportion of the of the workforce is migrant labour. Therefore, are they are, are politicians interested in representing their interests to any extent? And but ultimately, all of that, and I think uh, Aidan Regan in, in the Business Post points it out very well today. A huge amount of that comes down to the fact that the system that is there produces cheap meat for all of us. And politically, who's going to touch that? Are people willing to pay a, a proper price for meat that would require people working in the industry to be paid properly, farmers to be paid properly mm. as well? Are people willing to do that? And until such point as they are... This scenario, unfortunately, would strike me is likely to continue in one guise or another. One of the things that does strike me that even after the committee, even after all the coverage of the last few weeks, I don't have much better of an understanding of what actually happens inside these meat plants. The conditions inside them have not been laid out very well or very openly. Absolutely. And that was pointed out by, I think it was Greg Ennis, the SIPTO representative at that committee. He, you know, normally you'd find with union people, if there's an issue, they'll go, if, if the media the media want to speak to uh, somebody on the ground, you know, you, you, union reps will facilitate that. They'll be able to ring up somebody, listen, will you talk to Mick Clifford, whatever, blah, blah. Mm. He couldn't get anybody to, to speak. Now, I know there was a few that spoke uh, anonymously to the Irish Times during the week, but in general terms, people, th- th- there's a culture of fear there. There's fear there because most of them are migrant labour. There's fear there because if they speak out, they're going to get blacklisted in some form, as has happened in a few other industries. And so, as, as you say, as a result, we do not know the exact uh, conditions that are there. And we're hearing completely conflicting accounts from the employers' representatives and from unions who represent workers in there. Um, Dr. Lona Duffy, obviously in Monaghan, mm. this, this is quite uh, quite a big issue. I don't understand, though, from a health point of view, why if um, a school can reopen or if a centre or if any other sort of an, a place can open re- safely with the various conditions that are very well spelled out at this stage by the HSA and others, why a meat plant should be different and why we are seeing those unless those conditions are not being followed? Yeah, I think that's the question. Are they being followed? And when you hear, as Mick said in his article, that of the 39 plants that were visited, 30 got prior warning. And I know um, the HSA are saying it was only a matter of hours. It doesn't matter. These are meant to be spot checks with no warning. And this is just reflective of what happens all the time. If we don't want something to collapse, we ensure that they pass the the Mm -hmm. tests. Again, the issue, you know, there are a lot of um, food production factories in in our area. And I suppose in Monaghan, when we first, you know, we were one of the counties with the highest numbers per capita of COVID in the early stages. And what we saw is the initial surge was related to nursing homes and to the hospital sector and and the spread from there out into the community. The second surge came from um, 
food production factories and obviously they were the only factories that were open. But again, as has already been stated, it tends to be in the majority migrant workers in many of them who have little language. Um, many of them have no English at all and no messages were being given to them about, you know, what are the symptoms? What should you do? Um, if you do have symptoms that you will actually, the, the issue of not getting sick leave, you are entitled to the COVID sick leave with immediate mm. effect if you have symptoms. But many of them don't know that and they think, well, I'm not going to have any money. I'm not going to be able to, to pay my rent, to pay anything. So there are things that need to be out there. And from the early stages, I tried highlighting this even through public health and through social media saying, look, you know, they don't listen to RT, they don't listen to news talk, they don't read the Irish Times, the Sunday Business Post. That's not their means of communication. So therefore, how do we get the message across? We need to have messages going out in the factories over their their intercom system in every language saying don't come in if you have the following. This is what you do. Ring in if you don't have a GP because this is another issue that that appeared. Lots of these people don't have GPs because they, they can't get signed on because the practices are closed. So then they have no means of kind of number one, getting a sick note, getting the social welfare payment and being referred for testing. So GPs throughout the country had agreed that we would sort that. Our union asked us, the IMO said, will you just take people on who don't have a GP and arrange this, which we've been doing. But because of the lack of language, many of them still struggle with it. So I think they're big issues. What's it like to work in these factories? I mean, I've been into some of them to, to go out and do medicals. This explains why, you know, that we have so many migrant workers, because as us as Irish people don't want to work in these settings. It's not very pleasant. It's cold, it's messy, it's smelly. There are already many of them wearing protective gear, but like, are they wearing it in the right way? Can they socially distance? Usually not, because, you know, it could be meat, it could be chickens coming along a conveyor belt and, you know, there are massive amounts that they have to do their job quick, quick, quick. So you're not going to be able to have them socially distancing maybe by the two metres. But definitely there are other ways the majority of the time that we noted that spread happened in the hospital setting amongst workers wasn't actually from the patients or with their work. It was when the guard was down, when they went to have their lunch breaks, when they stood beside the water thing, when they got their coffee. So there the areas that perhaps need a lot of work and a lot of education on. And again, talking to people about how they transport, you know, lots of them come in buses together, maybe five in a car, their living conditions. You know, there may be not a lot we can do and that the meat factories can do about that, but, but there are things that we can educate them on. And I suppose how worried are you that these congregated settings are then going to lead to the likes of what we saw in the Midlands, possibly in Tipperary. We had a Fine Gael councillor on yesterday saying he wouldn't be surprised or had been told by people in the HC that there could be a lockdown in that county as soon as tomorrow, depending on how the tests in that particular mushroom plant goes. And a lot of people would be very frustrated that if these particular employers are, are the ones not looking after these details, that then means a lockdown for a lot of people who followed all the rules all the way along. Well, why why is this happening? If two months ago we could see that clusters were happening in factories where people were working closely together and with specific cohort type of patients or not patients, but workers being maybe those who kind of are clustered and living together. Why did we not learn from that? Why did the HSE not learn from that? Why have public health not learned from that? Why from the beginning then did we not give strict guidance and start the visits? in all other factories around the place. So, you know, we're very slow to pick up on this and there's no reason why this has to have happened, but it definitely better stop happening and we should be ensuring that it's not happening elsewhere. And that means HSA doing, HSA doing those visits, but no warning. I, I think that's the biggest scandal of this. Imagine well, telling them you're coming. It's like in one of the articles, I'm not sure it's your article or Jean Kerrigan's article saying, you know, you're told friends are coming for dinner. You hide everything away in the presses. You clear everything away, like, you know, into one bedroom. And that's exactly what, you know, 
what can we expect but that they're going to tidy up their 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 place before somebody comes yeah and an obvious element of that too long as you mentioned about when the guards down and so, one of the references was to situations in those factories in terms of eating in terms of toilet facilities and all that so you have a warning that uh, somebody's coming for an inspection you're not going to have everybody sitting around having their meal as perhaps they might normally be with no PPE on or, or whatever mm. like so I mean it, it, and the other thing is as you say there, there was such warning why was there not a concentrated testing and contact tracing operations put specifically in food production plants I mean those kind of things they were obvious but again I think it goes back to the bigger problem in relation to this and that is that it's effectively light touch regulation we don't want to look too closely because we don't want to encounter stuff that might be embarrassing mm, and lifting up the rug now and seeing what's wrong now that it is actually I- impacting the wider country and um, we're going to have to leave it there and um, my thanks to to Mick Clifford from the Irish Examiner and to Dr Lona Duffy uh, GP for joining us today to go through the papers